Chapter Six of Visions and Revisions by John Cooper Powis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Charles Lamb. Charles Lamb occupies a very curious position in English literature, and a very enviable one. He is perhaps the most widely known and widely spoken of of any stylist we possess, and the least understood. It was his humour while living to create misunderstanding, and he creates it still, and yet he is recognised on all sides as a classic of the unapproachable breed. Charles Lamb has among his admirers more uninteresting people than any great artist has ever had except Thackeray. He has more academic people in his train than any one has ever had except Shakespeare and more severe elderly pedantic persons profess to love him than love any other mortal writer these people all read lamb talk lamb quote lamb but they do not suggest lamb they do not smack as our ancestors used to say of the true elia vane but the immense humour of the situation does not stop here not only has this evasive city clerk succeeded in fooling the good people he has fooled the wicked ones i have myself in the circle of my acquaintance more than half a dozen charming people of the type who enjoy aubrey beardsley and have a mania for oscar wilde and sometimes dip into remy de gaumont and not one of them can read charles lamb he has succeeded in fooling them and making them suppose he is something quite different from what he is he used to tell his friends that every day he felt himself growing more official and moral he even swore he had been taken for a verger or a church warden well our friends of the enclosed gardens still take him for a verger but he is a more remarkable verger than they dream as a matter of fact there were some extremely daring and modern spirits in Elia's and Turridge, spirits who went further in an antinomian direction than, I devoutly pray, my friends are ever likely to go. And these scandalous ones adored him, and for his part he seemed to have liked them more than he ought. It is indeed very curious and interesting, the literary fate of Charles Lamb, jocular bishops, archly toying rural deans, rectors with a pension for anecdote, scholarly canons with a weakness for rum-punch, are all inclined to speak, as if in some odd way he was of their own very tribe. He had absolutely nothing in common with them, except a talent for giving false impressions. With regard to the devotion to him which certain gentle and old-fashioned ladies have, one's great-aunts for instance i am inclined to think that much more might be said there is a quality a super-refined exquisite quality and one with a pinch of true ironic salt in it which the more thick-skinned among us sensationalists may easily miss it is all very well for us to talk of burning with a hard gem-like flame when as a matter of fact we move along dull as cavemen to some of the finest aesthetic effects in the world not to appreciate the humour of that rarest and sweetest of all human types the mischievous-tongued great-aunt is to be nothing short of a profane fool 
but charles lamb is a very different person from our goldsmiths and coopers and austins and their modern representatives it needs something else in a great aunt than old-fashioned irony to appreciate him it needs an imagination that is very nearly shakespearean and it needs a passion for beautiful style of which a flaubert or an anatole france might be proud so here we have the old sly Elia fooling people now as he fooled them in his lifetime and a riddle both to the godly and the ungodly the great goethe whose walpurgis night he apes made Elia put out his tongue read we learn with no little pleasure some fantastic skit of this incorrigible one did he discern the sublime olympian what a cunning flute-player lurked under the queer mask something between a jew a gentleman and an angel he liked to fancy he looked and one must confess that in the subtlest of all sense of that word a gentleman he was lamb's essays were written on off hours when he could escape from his office once completely freed from the necessity of office work his writing lost its magic his genius was of that peculiarly delicate texture which requires the stimulus of reaction one cannot be too grateful that the incomparable pater after lamb himself perhaps the greatest master of english prose found it necessary to utter his appreciation pater as usual hits the mark with an infallible hand when he speaks of that overhanging sophoclean tragedy which darkened lamb's earlier days and never quite left him it is of course this the sense of one living always on the edge of a precipice that gives such piquancy and charm to elia's mania for little things well might he turn to little things when great things his sun and his moon had been turned for him to blood but as pater suggests there is philosophy in all this and more philosophy than many suppose it is unfortunate that the unworldly coleridge and the worldly thackeray should have pitched upon lamb's saintliness to make copy of nothing infuriated him more than such a tone towards himself and he was right to be infuriated his unselfishness his sweetness of which these good men make so much were only one aspect of the philosophy of his whole life lamb was in his life a great epicurean philosopher as in all probability many other saints have been the thing in him that fretted carlyle his fits of intoxication his outbursts of capricious impishness his perversity and his irony were just as much part of the whole scheme as were his celibacy and his relation to his sister what one can really gather from lamb is nothing less than a very wise and very subtle way of life a way that amid many outrageous experiences will be found singularly lucky in the first place let it be noted lamb deliberately cultivates the art of transforming the commonplace it is absurd to deny the evidence of this element from which we all suffer as it is to maintain that it cannot be changed it can be changed 
That is precisely what this kind of rare genius does. It is a miracle, of course, but everything in art is a miracle. Nature tosses out indiscriminately her motley productions, and if you are born for such universalism, you may swallow them wholesale. The danger of such a downright manner of going to work is that it blunts one's critical sense. If you will swallow everything just as it is, you taste very little. But Charles Lamb is nothing if not critical, nothing if not an epicure, and his manner of dealing with the commonplace sharpens rather than blunts the edge of one's taste. And what is this manner? It is nothing less than an indescribable blending of Christianity and paganism. Heine, another of Carlyle's blackguards, achieves the same synthesis. It is this spiritual achievement, at once a religious and an aesthetic triumph, which makes Elia, for all his weaknesses, such a really great man. The Wordsworths and Coleridge's who patronised him were too self-opinionated and individualistic to be able to enter into either tradition. Wordsworth is neither a Christian nor a pagan. He is a moral philosopher. Elia is an artist who understands the importance of ritual in life, but of naturalness in ritual. How difficult, whether as a thinker or a man, is it to be natural in one's loves and hates? How many quite authoritative Philistines never really let the world know how bohemian at heart they are, and how much of our modern artistic feeling is a pure affectation. Now, whatever Elia was not, he was wantonly, wickedly, whimsically natural. He never concealed his religious feelings, his superstitious feelings. He never concealed his fancies, his fads, his manias, his vices. He never concealed his emotion when he felt a thrill of passionate faith. He never concealed it when he felt a thrill of blasphemous doubt. He accepted life's little pleasures as they appeared, and did not hesitate to make cults of the ones that appeared most appealing. If he had Philistine feelings, he indulged them without shame. If he had recondite and artistic feelings, he indulged them also without shame. He is one of the few great men not afraid to be unoriginal, and hence he is the most original of all. I cannot, says he, sit and think. Books think for me. Well, books did think for him, for he managed to press the books of the great poets into his service, as no mortal writer has ever dared to do before. And he could do it without impairing his originality, because he was as original as the great poets he used. We say, deliberately, poets, for as Pater points out, to find Lamb's rivals in sheer imaginative genius, we have to leave the company of those who write prose. Do the humorous ecclesiastics and scholarly tutors who profess to understand Elia ever peep into the essay called Witches, or that essay called A Child Angel? 
there are things there that are written for a very different circle certain sentences in dream children too have a beauty that takes a natural man's breath completely away touches of far-off romance terrible and wistful as anonymous ballads alternate with gestures of rabelaisian humour such as generous souls love elia's style is the only thing in english prose that can be called absolutely perfect compared with the rich capricious wilful lingering by the way of lamb's manner pater's is precise demure and overgrave wilde's fantastic and over provocative ruskin's intolerably rhetorical into what other prose style could the magic of shakespeare's little touches be drawn or the high melancholy of milton's imagery be led without producing a frightful sense of the incongruous he can quote them both or any other great old master and if it were not for the inverted commas we should not be aware of the insertion elia cannot say anything not the simplest thing without giving it a turn a twist a lift a lightness a grace that would redeem the very grease spots of a scullion's apron there is no style in the world like it germany france italy russia have no charles lamb their flaubert's and denunzios belong to a different tribe even turgenev just because he has to get on with his story cannot do precisely this every single one of the essays and most of the letters can be read over and over again and their cadences caressed as if they were living people's features and they are living they are as living as those japanese prints so maddening to some among us or as the drawings of leonardo they also in their place are pure line to use the ardent modern slang and unpolluted imaginative suggestion the mistake our aesthetes make these lovers of egyptian dances and babylonian masks is that they suppose the simplicity of lamb's subjects debar him from the rare effects ah they little know he can take the wistfulness of children and the quaint gestures of dead comedians and the fantasies of old worm-eaten folios and the shadows of sundials upon cloistered lawns and the heart-breaking evasions of such as can never know love and out of these things he can make a music as piteous and lovely as ophelia's songs it is a curious indication of the lack of real poetic feeling in the feverish art neophytes of our age that they should miss these things in elia one wonders if they have ever felt the remote translunar beauty that common faces in old dim pitiful things can wear sometimes it would seem not like herod the tetrarch they must have peacocks whose crying calls the rain and the spreading of their tails brings down the moon they must have opals that burn with flame as cold as ice and onyxes and amber and the tapestries of tyre the pansies that are for thoughts touch them not 
and the voices of the street singers leave them cold. It is precisely the lack of natural kindly humour in these people who must always be clutching cameos from Syracuse between their fingers, which leads them, when the tension of the gem-like flame can be borne no more, into sheer garishness and brutality. One knows it so well, that particular tone, the tone of the jaded amorist, for whom the unspeakable rural solitudes and the sweet security of streets mean both of them boredom and desolation. It is not their subtlety that makes them thus suffer. It is their lack of it. What? Is the poignant world old play of poor mortal men and women, with their absurdities and excesses, their grotesque reserve and fantastic confessions, their advances and withdrawals not interesting enough to serve? It serves sufficiently, it serves well enough, when genius takes it in hand. Perhaps, after all, it is that which is lacking. Charles Lamb went through the world with many avoidances, but one thing he did not avoid, the innocence of unmitigated foolishness. He was able to give to the simple Simons of this life that Rabelaisian touch of magnanimous understanding which makes even the leanest wits among us glow. He went through the world with strange timidities and no daring stride. He loitered in its by-alleys. He drifted through its bazaars. He sat with the crowd in its circuses. He lingered outside its churches. He ate his pot of honey among its graves. And as he went his way, irritable and freakish, wayward and arbitrary, he came by chance upon just those side-lights and intimations, those rumours and whispers, those figures traced on sand and dust and water, which more than all the law and the prophets draw near to the unuttered word. End of chapter 6